Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Isabella Kaminska. Today we're bringing you the third edition of our movie review. And since it's coming up to Christmas, we figured a festive theme was in order. The movie we are looking at is the 1983 classic Trading Places, Every Trader's Dream. For anyone who hasn't seen the film, it's the quintessential commodity trading movie. Even so, commodities play a sort of uh, background role. The key part of the plot is a fable about what it takes to to succeed in life is it nature or is it nurture and the story centers around two key characters there's Lewis Winfolk III who is played by Dan Aykroyd and he's this very privileged broker uh, in Philadelphia who has never wanted for anything he went to all the right schools he lives in a beautiful house he has a gorgeous fiance and he's very good at his job but has a very good reputation Then there's Billy Ray Valentine, who is played by Eddie Murphy. He is the exact opposite. He is this down-and-out con man who's hustling on the streets. He's also sort of presented as the sort of archetypal, uh, set-upon black guy who's never given a break because of his skin colour. So at the beginning of the movie, he gets sort of framed for a crime, and it's not his fault, but people make assumptions because of who he is, how he looks, etc. And it's through that chance meeting that he meets Winthorpe. And this gives Winthorpe's bosses, who are Duke and Duke, very established commodity brokers, the idea of trying to switch their roles around. Those two happen to be billionaires, and because they clearly have nothing better to do than mess with other people's lives, they're kind of philosophical pranksters. They're trying to figure out the answers to the big questions, one of which is, will someone like Winthorpe, if everything he depends on is taken away from him, will he descend to the same low level as a senior? con man on the streets like Eddie Murphy's Billy Ray Valentine. At the same time, will someone like Billy Ray ascend to the, you know, height of being a top broker if everything is given to him on a platter like it was for Winthorpe? And the two Dukes take different positions. And this is the central uh, plot. There are sidekick characters. There's Ophelia, the the prostitute with a a heart of gold who tries to sort of, um, you know, help him find his feet when he loses everything. And at the same time, there's the butler, who is the sort of auxiliary character to Ophelia uh, on the Eddie Murphy front. And he helps him navigate the world of the rich. And it's from here that all hilarity ensues, essentially.
Joining me as usual to analyse the film for all its esoteric economic meaning, whilst also finding links to the modern day, is Thomas Hale, the FT's capital markets correspondent. Gavin Jackson is ill this week, so we've roped in the FT's trading room editor, Philip Stafford, for a cameo appearance at some point in the show. But we also have a very special guest down the phone line from Houston. It's the streetwise professor himself, Craig Perong, professor of finance at the University of Houston, an all-round expert on all matters, market structure and trading. He also blogs at streetwiseprofessor.com. Hello. Lovely to have you with us. We're going to be talking about what I think is probably the most famous trading film of all time certainly every time i ever speak to any um anyone in the markets this is the film they reference as the the one that got them interested in finance craig what's your experience of the film itself but also you know you sit in a very specific area you meet traders through your day-to-day research so what impact has this film had on you well, it is the you know, sort of the common reference for you know, people in the marketplaces. It's something that everybody, regardless of what market you're in, you've seen it, you've known it, uh, you can relate to it. Even if you're not an orange juice trader or even a floor trader, you can relate to. But also, I think it's been sort of the biggest bridge between you know, the commodity markets, which were and the, the futures trading, which was very esoteric, uh, and the broader populace. Yeah, so when I teach, the, the easiest way for me to communicate very quickly about what floor trading is about is to mention trading places. And then all the students can relate to that, uh, even many of those who were born after the movie was made. Tom, when did you first watch it? Because you're a millennial. I watched this probably about 10 years ago. I think it was on at Christmas or something, and I, I had vague memories of it. But yeah, I had a slightly different reaction to it the second time I saw it, given that I now have, you know at least some semblance of an idea how trading and broking and so on works. Craig, do you find that um, even now your students watch it and are inspired by it, or do you think it was something very specific for the 80s? No, I think that they're very much inspired by it. I mean, students have been are fascinated. It's, it's easy for me to teach about floor trading because it's sort of exciting, it's exotic, and it's you know, very interesting to students. It's you know, sort of much more real in many ways than you know, sort of modern electronic trading. And the students are engaged with it. And, and like I say, you know, trading places is sort of the, the mental image that most of them have. I wanted to talk about some of the details. The film came out in 1983. What was going on in that time period in the markets? Uh, and in terms of market structure, what were the main exchanges? Just give us some, you know, a flavor of what we what was happening back then. Well, the, uh, the, the futures markets were much more fragmented than they are now. So whereas now they're just a, a couple of you know, three basically uh, major exchanges in the world, there were you know, three major exchanges in Chicago at the time, plus several in New York. Uh, so the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Chicago Board of Trade, Mid-America Exchange, Chicago Board Options Exchange were all major floor trading uh, venues in Chicago. And then you had uh, uh, New York Board of Trade, uh, New York Cotton Exchange, uh, Coffee, Sugar, Cocoa, sort of uh, more specialty exchanges, plus the New York Mercantile Exchange in New York. And this was also the heyday of life in London. I would say that this era was essentially the acme of floor trading. It was the golden age of floor trading. In the 70s, with inflation and volatility, that was a big uh, fill-up to trading generally, and that's really where the uh, floor trading uh, uh, exploded. And if you look, for example, at the value of memberships on the exchanges, they were going up dramatically during this period of time. And it was also this was also came out three years before the 
Chicago Merck, the Board of Trade, and Reuters announced the Globex Initiative, which and now Globex is the largest electronic trading system in the world. So this was, you know, this is sort of a snapshot of floor trading in its heyday. So the question I'm going to ask now is, um, in the film, there is already a sort of um, creeping digitization. We see in some of the scenes, the desks have monitors with electronic pricing. Was that relatively new or was that something that had been around for a while already? Yeah, that had developed in the late 70s, early 80s. So you see Tellerate screens and other electronic uh, displays. And so uh, electronic information display was becoming uh, more common. But then it hadn't been integrated into trade execution. Uh, And in fact, uh, the exchange uh, members and the exchanges were very uh, suspicious about the the thought of automating uh, the process. Before we get into the whole trading side of it in any more detail, the story itself is quite a poignant tale about what we perceive to be a nurture versus nature scenario. What triumphs in the end? Tom, you're... Your reading of the whole film is Prince and the Pauper, right? Tell me why. Watching this, I was reminded of the Mark Twain children's story, which I read a very long time ago, The Prince and the Pauper, which is uh, has a similar theme, a young pauper and a prince change places and the prince gets to see how difficult life can be and the pauper gets to live the kind of high life in Tudor England. One of the differences with this film, of course, is in The Prince and the Pauper, the whole point is they look so similar they can be mistaken for each other. In Elizabethan England, you could have a pauper and a prince who looked identical, as they do. In this film, one of the central points of the film is that Eddie Murphy, the pauper, is black and um, his counterpart is white, and they couldn't be mistaken for each other at all. So it's really about um, a kind of different degree of separation, even to what you get in, in the class spectrum in the UK, which Mark Twain was writing about from a kind of historical fiction perspective. I should inform you all that Philip Stafford has now arrived. So before we get into the nurture-nature question, we are going to get some excellent insight from the man who uh, edits the trading room itself. What better name and parallel than that um, to analyse trading places with? So, Philip... We have just been discussing a little bit of the history behind uh, trading platforms, trading exchanges, and what was going on in the 80s. And Craig was mentioning how this was pretty much the era when uh, digitization was, was creeping in, but it was still very much the era of the floor trader. Tell us a little bit about your your view of, of, of that pivotal moment, and, and is this kind of the film that in some ways, isolates the real changes in the in the market structure. Yes, I, I agree with Craig on, on a lot of that. And I, looking at it now in, in late 2016, I, it's something of a, a time capsule. Um, you know, the, you can see little bits in there at times where that uh, uh, electronification is, is coming in. You've got uh, the screens and, and uh, information beginning to flow through electronically, but it's still a very human dominated market now in looking back at you're almost looking at it from the other end of the uh, the spectrum where these pits are, are you know, there's hardly any of them left now and everything is completely automated so i think it's very much of it uh, you know a, a period piece but it it also shows uh, kind of a lot of the, the themes that you end up writing about every week uh just beginning to to, to come through so I, I that's another another of the many reasons i, I do love this this film 
Of course, if this film was to be redone today, how would it look? I mean, the electronic version of this film wouldn't be half as much fun, would it, uh, Craig? Difficult to imagine how the sort of the, the culminating plot scene would look in an electronic era. Yeah, because it, the thing about the movie was the floor was a place where all the activity congregated. And so you could capture it on a single shot in a camera. Whereas today, uh, the traders would be uh, dispersed all over the world in rooms, and there wouldn't be any one single place. And, and in fact, there might even be computers and machines involved. Uh, those wouldn't be very dramatic, would they? Yeah, I'm sure that a, imagine a filmmaker could uh, uh, could reproduce that for the electronic era, but I don't think it would be as, as colorful or as uh, impactful as, as the floor scenes were. How accurate would you say, first of all, Craig, and then um, Philip, how accurate were the depictions of the pit? in in the film yeah it was a movie and so it was uh, a a little bit stylized and a little bit exaggerated Uh, but they did actually have some uh, yes interspersed in the movie they did have some uh, some actual clips from the floor and you know obviously those were realistic and uh, the scene at the end you know again was uh, you know somewhat exaggerated but it it caught the the essence of floor training is the way that I would characterize it some of the people who were were just back starting then are kind of still around in in the industry, and, and sometimes you, you'll get them talking on this. And uh, you know, the the Nibot management, I think they had a, a say in in the actual script. And one of the, the amusing things was, was, I think they did it on a Saturday. And uh, in order to actually ensure, ensure that they got the traders in there, I think they bribed them something like fifty dollars a person. And they, they, apparently they all turned up on a Saturday, so the, the actual traders were real. And uh, you know, the down to to um, how it would move, and even some of the, the the prices were pretty accurate as well. Just um, was wondering if you were to make the film now, obviously that pivotal final scene, there'd be no floor; it would be remote and computerized. Would it? Would it still work? From from a kind of plot perspective, would it would would the price action still play out in the way it played out in that pit, or is there anything about the the changes in market structure that would kind of undo the the kind of plan at the end? Craig, that sounds like a question for for the market. Yeah, no, I, you know, in that part of it, that you know, that would still work. I mean, you know, for example, uh, just think of a flash crash or something of that nature. I mean, yes, we can have dramatic price movements over very short periods of time. And just as uh, then and now, uh, information moves markets. And uh, now, if anything, information moves the markets even more rapidly. From what, what killed the um, the uh, Duke and Duke, I mean, it was a margin call, and they, you know, they they still go on all the time. Yeah, you wouldn't have have uh, people, you know, be surrounded by uh, people in pits. But yeah, the the, the principle is uh, will will probably always be there as long as we have futures contracts. Whilst I love market structure talk, it is time to get into the actual structure of the film, I think, because it's not just a lesson about market structure. It's also there's a there's a real life lesson here in terms of how economies work, how game theory works, perhaps as well. And the value of optionality. Craig, what do you think in terms of the economics at play? What what is going on here? Well, I mean, you know, so one important uh, economic aspect of here is uh, are the markets fair? Uh, are sometimes uh, the markets rigged? And uh, what are the, the broader ramifications of that? Also, I think, you know, sort of another sort of broader economic sociological uh, aspect of it is fit very well with the, the floor trading, you know, aspect is a dichotomy in the film uh, between sort of the up-and-comers, the hustlers, if you will, on the one hand, and 
sort of an established elite uh, on the other, and they're you know, somewhat in conflict. And that was really something that was fairly common on the floors of the exchanges uh, at the time. There were a lot of uh, up-and-coming strivers uh, you know, on the floors, uh, uh, and there was an interesting uh, interplay uh, between the floor traders on the one hand and then the big institutional traders on the other. And that's, in some respects, uh, mirrored in the film. In terms of the nature-nurture question, we've got these two broker bigwigs, Duke and Duke. The whole film really hangs around them. They decide that they, in their position of all power, can dictate other people's lives. They decide somewhat randomly to play a bit of an experimental game with one of their star employees, uh, Lewis Winthorpe, and they want to basically test whether he's the product of of his environment or whether he's the product of good genetics, etc. So this is how the whole film begins. Um, There's that wonderful opening scene with the marriage of Figaro in the background, which again, I think, uh, alludes to this idea of social engineering, perhaps, um, for those familiar with the story of the marriage of Figaro. And from that perspective, what's the message here? Is it that life's basically unfair, economics aside, your lot in life is decided by the coincidence of where you're born? Or is this a story about the potential to improve oneself, that actually through the market system, the market system is a massively equalising force for change in that sense? Tom, do you have any views? Yeah, I think one of the interpretations of this film is it kind of captures, or it ties into some of what might be some of the the flawed thinking around the nature nurture debate in general which is frequently it goes along the lines of someone is very good at x are they good at x because of nature or are they good at x because of nurture in the case of this film they're very good at being successful in a broking firm but what's really interesting i think is not so much does nature or nurture cause it but what exactly is x and i think the legacy of this film the extent to which it on occasion conflates the high returns from the economics of broking with the with the quick thinking and the talent needed to trade well or to to trade in the pits ultimately almost all of the film is about the positioning of broking as an industry that which has some characteristics in his, historically of being basically an oligopoly a very uncompetitive line of business it's easy to address the film as looking at the skills you would need to succeed in that world and that actually the Eddie Murphy character ends up having them when another interpretation is there's a kind of sleight of hand here and it's not really about the skills we think it's about. It's about a massive structure, a societal structure, an infrastructure of broking and a, ultimately a deliberately uncompetitive market for accessing markets. Craig, that sounds right up your street. And I think you were making the point as well that there's a clue. Um, the, you know, the makers of the film are alluding to this unfair situation by naming the main, like the main manipulators, Duke and Duke. And you, you've made the point that this is a kind of in- subtle reference to the nobility, right? Yes, nobility, rentiers. Uh, I mean, the, there's a, my favorite scene in the movie is where they sit uh, Eddie Murphy down in, in front of uh, some uh, you know, food items and explain commodities to him. 
and then uh, one of the Duke brothers says to the other, well, tell them the best part. And the brother responds, well, the best part is, is that we have customers that buy and we have customers that sell. And regardless of whether they win or lose, we make money on commissions. And so that there's on the one hand, uh, sort of the, the, the rentier, you know, collect the commissions, non-really risk-taker culture, you know, confronting the uh, much more entrepreneurial kind of culture. And there are you know, other aspects in the film. So Bo Diddley is a pawnbroker, the you know, philia, the, uh, you know, the prostitute that's, uh, you know, hustling in order to uh, um, make the money so that uh, she can retire and have a normal life. And, uh, you know, I think that that's a, an interesting dichotomy uh, in, in the film. And that, I think that that's one of the sort of the major sociological uh, aspects of the movie. Of course, would Duke and Duke be allowed to trade on their own account in today's environment, Philip? Uh, quite possibly. I think one of the um, interesting when you start to, to understand how the industry works. I mean, the uh, on one side, that you know, they're trading on behalf of clients, and on the other side, you know, they, they might actually be trading on their own account. They probably would have to be a lot more uh, stringent about how they uh, they keep those apart. But you know, for the sake of the the, the, the film uh, and the plot, I think the the, the people just took uh, slight liberties with it. I don't think that was a. Although it might actually have been the case at the time. Maybe Craig knows that uh, the answer to that one better than I do. But, of course, the film did inspire one piece of legislation. We have um, the so-called Eddie Murphy rule, right? How, how did that come about? Well, that's a product of Dodd-Frank, and which was a broad regulation of the derivatives markets uh, generally. And uh, one of the specific uh, prohibitions uh, in the law was trading on inside information, in particular information derived from, from government reports. And that sort of brings up an, an interesting issue in the sense that uh, there's always been uh, controversy about, well, should insider trading be applied to uh, commodity markets? Uh, and really, despite many efforts to uh, you know, regulate that or look at regulating that, really the only one that's uh, come to fruition, no pun intended in this case, is uh, the uh, prohibition on trading on uh, uh, illicitly obtained government uh, information. That's obviously a reference to the Clarence Beaks um, plot, where the Dukes, in a bid to get ahead, essentially hire a privateer-type security agent who um, is charged with looking after the crop report uh, before it's delivered to the public. And he has insider access, and they pay him off to get an inside look. But Clarence Beaks also is the guy they use to set up Winthorpe in this whole experiment where they trade places. Clarence Beak does this through uh, planting a wad of notes that he claims were stolen from a fellow member of the club. And he also, I believe, plants some drugs on Winthorpe's person. And this is all in a bid to, to, to test the ultimate hypothesis, whether if, if you take away all the rich environment that Winfolk finds himself in and all his privilege, will he descend to the same sort of moral standards as what they class as the underclass, a.k.a. Eddie Murphy, Billy Ray Valentine, who comes from the streets. He's got nothing. We see him at the beginning pretending to be uh, blind and limbless. Um, will he descend to that sort of low point? And on the flip side, they are, they're arguing, will Eddie Murphy, given everything that Winthorpe has, will he ascend to the position of a prominent broker? They set up Winthorpe, though, and I find that fascinating because it reminds me of this whole idea of habeas corpus and presumed innocent until proven guilty because Winthorpe is, um, I mean, the, the old adage of, um, 
you know, your friends don't like you when you're, they only like you when you're rich, right? I was messing that up, but you know what I mean. It really comes to fruition here. Tom, what do you think? Yes, that's an interesting point about the legal side of things. It's a film about capitalism, which is sustained largely on the rule of law. But one of the interesting things about this club and this broker company, Duke and Dukes, which operates like a private members club, which is precisely why Eddie Murphy type characters can't get in in the first place. What this scene shows is they dispense with the rule of law. I mean, they're accusing someone of breaking the law, but they don't have a trial. In fact, they behave from a civilizational perspective in what we would call a primitive kind of tribal approach to justice. They don't they don't follow the highly developed 1980s US approach to justice at all, which is interesting given that they are placing themselves in the kind of peak of the establishment peak of society. And you know, that's precisely why these characters are able to exploit people and play god with people's lives because there is no real rule of law in this club. It's it's based on informal rules. It's anthropologically very interesting. It's it's all to do with relationships. Uh, you can be defamed at any point, and people are actually in a very vulnerable position. I would suggest in any any such environment. You know, there are many environments that continue to to exist like this. An excellent point. It also relates to your uh, game theory illusion uh, earlier, Izzy, which is that yeah, you know, these markets were face to face, and you know you. Sp- screw with somebody today, you know, you're looking them in the face and they can get back at you tomorrow. And it's typically not going to be through filing a lawsuit. It's going to be through some sort of retaliatory measure. It just, uh, my favorite story in this regard was when heir of the, uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, founders of uh, Marshall Fields, the large uh, Chicago retailer, tried to corner the wheat market in the late 19th century, and he was counting on the fact that uh, most of the wheat was in Minnesota and the Great Lakes were frozen, and he didn't think that it would be possible to bring that wheat to Chicago, and so he would be able to corner the market. Well, somebody on the other side says, okay, you're going to try that. So this is a rich guy, uh, Philip Armour, of the, uh, if you've ever had Armour Chili or any other Armour meat product, that's the, the guy. He bought four ships, converted them into icebreakers took them up to Minnesota, loaded the wheat, and dumped them on the market. And yeah, that's the kind of retaliatory strategy and sort of extra-legal mechanism that uh, frequently enforces conduct or enforced conduct uh, in these very personal face-to-face markets. Craig, you've told me also a few times that in your experience, the, the trading floor gets rough in other ways. I mean, it, the, physical violence has been known to occur on some of these trading floors, and, and that is uh, certainly some sort of inhibitor to manipulate. Like, if you mess with someone face-to-face and there is a fear of being sh- struck in the face, you're going to yep. act differently, No. Yes, no, absolutely. And it's, you know, this also goes back to the anthropology that, that, that Tom noted. Uh, there's a famous story about an uh, ex-Chicago Bear football player who decided that even though he had been a soybean oil trader, that he saw all the uh, money being made by uh, people standing on the top step of the Treasury bond uh, pit. And standing on the top step is very valuable because everybody can see you, and that's where the guys that made tens, hundreds of millions of dollars stood. So he thought, hey, I'm a big football player. I'll go stand up there. And uh, what happened was is that he was assaulted by several of the top step traders, and he retreated uh, tail between his legs back to the uh, soybean oil pit. And so you're right. I mean, yes, sometimes rules, uh, the, the informal rules and norms that Tom noted were enforced by physical violence. I mean, we've mentioned the scene already, but the, but the classic pawn shop scene 
which is one of the great scenes in the film where Winthorpe has this watch and he's got, you know, he's he's down and out, he's got nothing, he's in this pawn shop, he's got a watch. And the guy in the pawn shop shows interest in the watch and they proceed to have this negotiation over the price and Winthorpe, this seasoned broker, just can't compete with this guy. Um, he says, you know, this is a, an incredibly valuable watch. It's, it can tell the time in all these different cities around the world and he says, well, it's in Philadelphia, it's worth $50. And so he eventually gives up Winthorpe and says, fine, just give me the money. And then he looks down and sees a gun and he says, how much is your gun? And it, it's the end of the scene. But it's just a very neat way of demonstrating the kind of, um, I think coming back to the, the notion of talent in trading places we were talking about earlier, how little this really is about talent and skill and you know that X that nature or nurture might bestow upon you and how much it is to do with the 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 positioning which you often accidentally end up with in a in a very complex series of systems in some positions you need a gun to be able to negotiate in some positions you need to be on the stop the top step you need to be you know able to defend yourself physically on the trading floor etc 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 and I think also if you just have a, a brief uh, comparison with the modern world where uh, a lot of it is anonymous, uh, as Craig said, I mean, people can be spread all around the world. I think many people probably know the case of uh, Navinda Sarau. The interesting question, would that actually have happened if everyone had been actually in the same room? You have a feeling that if somebody wanted to uh, um, rip somebody off in, when you're in the same room, you only ever do it once before you your name gets around. You know, there's been several high-profile cases and it's taken authorities years, I mean, literally five or six years, to, to catch up with them. I would imagine that justice would have been pretty summary and uh, instant in a, in a pit. Craig, what do you think? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, again, I think in many cases, these very informal mechanisms of justice are, are more effective and certainly more uh, expeditious than, uh, than the formal wheels of justice. Another example, there's a, a novel that was based on the wheat corner that I mentioned earlier called The Pit. It's a fairly well-known novel in the early 1900s. And there's a scene in there about a you know, broker that's essentially shunned because of his conduct. And you know, so he's he sort of yells out, you know, futilely, and everybody ignores him. And uh, uh, you know, it was a, a very effective mechanism for uh, uh, enforcing, you know, rules of conduct. I would like to propose that that pawn shop scene, which is one of my favourite scenes, also tells us a valuable lesson about liquidity, does it not? Because um, I mean, I've got the exchange here; it is pretty great. I'm going to read it out. So, character. The pawnbroker is uh, played by Bo Diddley, and uh, it goes like this: He's Winthorpe arrives and he shows the uh, the watch. He goes, "Man, that watch is so hot, it's smoking." Winthorpe says, "Hot? Do you mean to imply stolen?" Um, Bo Diddley, "I'll give you fifty bucks for it." Fifty bucks? Um, no, no, no. This is a rush for cold, the thinnest water-resistant watch in the world, singularly unique, sculpted in design, handcrafted in in Switzerland, and water-resistant to three atmospheres. This is the sports watch of the 80s. $6,955 in retail. Got a receipt? Look, it tells me time simultaneously. Monte Carlo, Beverly Hills, London, Paris, Romanstadt. In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. I mean, if that's not what happens to a distressed seller, um, I don't know what is. Craig, is that a great uh, example to teach students the power of liquidity? 
Yes, no, it is a very good example. Need to sell in a hurry, need to sell something that's uh, non-standardized, which is another thing about the futures markets. They trade standardized products just to create that sort of liquidity. So that's also sort of an interesting sort of market contrast between the ease of buying and selling something that's uh, standardized by an exchange as opposed to buying and selling something that's uh, idiosyncratic uh, and not standardized, uh, particularly uh, uh, when you need money in a hurry. It's interesting that the exchange itself it's the kind of wordplay and the double meanings of the word hot through which Winthorpe loses his position here. It's because he doesn't speak the language of the street. He has a different interpretation of hot. The, the guy compliments his watch. He, he, he gives an implication straight away that it's stolen, completely right. demolishing the strength of his position, at which point the guy puts in his low ball offer of $50. You know, and it just really brings home how if you don't speak the language, much like you know, if you don't speak the language of the trading floor, you're not going to get a good deal. But it's interesting you bring up the language of the trading floor. So I, true story I'll tell on myself, which is that uh, when I was a PhD student, I worked for a futures brokerage firm uh, for about a year and a half. And uh, the first couple of days that I got into this brokerage firm, I, I was getting my PhD in economics and finance. I thought I knew all this stuff. And I came in and the language was just utterly baffling to me. So I, 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 fortunately, I wasn't a cubicle guy. I had my own office. So I basically locked myself in my office for a couple of days, got some, uh, some, some books on trading so I could pick up on the lingo. Um, but, it, 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 but that's another uh, illustration of the sort of the distinct society and the sort of the anthropological issues uh, relating to these markets. Yeah, and I think uh, um, Tom makes a, a great point here about about the, the two distinctions of uh, two definitions of, of hot. I mean, uh, to me, I mean, it's, it's this film where right the way through, people aren't what they seem from first appearance. You know, I mean, whether it's Eddie Murphy not actually being disabled, uh, the rich aren't smart, Duke's not infallible. Um, you know the the report doesn't say what it does. Um, even the gorilla isn't real. Uh, you know, the, and, and, I, and I think what what the film does fantastically well is is kind of peel back um, the mask in 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 so many different ways. And one thing it does is it's actually peel back the mask of, of uh, trading as well. In some ways, it, it's it kind of the same approach that people took to the big short from a few years ago, and and you kind of explain what seems extremely daunting, as in the, the trading world, and they, they they start throwing in these these phrases, you know, such as. Uh, Oh, you guys are just bookies, and I mean, obviously they they kind of dumb it down for the 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 wonderful. This is what your breakfast, and this is how we trade commodities scene. But uh, you know, there's a, there's an unmasking of finance as well as as uh, unmasking of of all the people within it. Yeah, I mean, I thought there was a dark irony that um, the very quite brilliant and incredibly simple explanation of commodities, even that can't avoid an acronym, the BLT. Acronyms are just everywhere. It is completely pervasive in finance. And, and it really is, there really is a massive distinction going on between different forms of complexity. And it's very difficult in general to tell if something is complex because of the language and, and to tell if something is complex because it actually is a complicated or abstract idea. I think just quickly, finally, on the language point, I think probably my favourite scene in the whole film is the restaurant scene where Eddie Murphy is talking to one of the clients and... The client asks Eddie Murphy what he thinks and the, the camera pulls back and everyone in the room turns around and they're listening to what he says because the point is the way in which he talks is so much more important than what he actually says. And Eddie Murphy gives these three kind of pieces of advice for the year and you, they're not, you can barely even hear what they are. They're not very memorable. 
they're, they're almost nonsense, but he delivers them with such confidence. There's this brilliant pause and then everyone in the room carries on talking and then this client stares at him for a while and decides he's one of us and starts laughing and that's the point at which you know he's made it as a broker. And he doesn't say anything intelligent, he doesn't say anything insightful. And this is, you know, this nature-nurture, Is he has he got the skills and the chops to make it as a broker? Well, we're thinking about the wrong types of skills here. It's not about being a smart logician and working out how markets go up and down and being smarter than everyone else. It's about speaking the way everyone else speaks, or at least speaking the way the people you want to do business with speak. And if you can do that, then you can trade places. It's a very good point, but it also alludes to this idea that um, broking isn't inherently very difficult. But there is one more behavioural point I want to ask your opinions on, which is um, the transformation that occurs in Eddie Murphy as soon as he acquires some property. Because that, to me, is very representative of the idea of skin in the game. And so you see that party scene where, you know, he at first he's just completely, you know, free for all, come over lay on the booze but as he sees people disrespecting his stuff suddenly he becomes the thing that he was you know previously fighting against or at least criticizing and then there's that line later on where he has a real realization of what really makes society tick when he tells um Winthorpe who's trying to get back at the dukes for putting his life in misery and he says um you know it seems to me like the best way you can hurt rich people is by making them poor um what do you think about that Craig? And that's, I think, the sort of the main sort of capitalist theme in the movie, which is is that uh, you know, property matters and property affects and ownership affects uh, behavior. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, so I think that that's uh, you know, sort of, in some respects, in a movie that could be viewed as being you know, having a, at least a, a, a theme that's skeptical about capitalism and, and looking at its warts, that it's a, hey, fundamentally, you know, property ownership is important and it affects the way that people behave and probably in a good way. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's a very cute perception of, of how we as, as human beings uh, react when we've got more or, or less money. You know, we come back to this kind of is it a nature or nurture thing. I mean, and this is a question I always sometimes struggle with this film about how revolutionary it is and whether it's 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 just showing the world as it is or, or trying to remake it. Because in, in, in some ways, the the, the trading floor uh, and the pit, as it was, it was a, a fantastic place for social mobility. Kids with no qualifications, could, they could really earn in a, a huge amount of money, and it, and it, it was no, and it probably still isn't a, a great respect of social class. And it's all about your your ability to trade. And I, I mean, I guess that the, probably the, the nearest comparison would be something like professional sports, where you know you may question about the social u- utility of, of being able to kick or throw a football a long way to a uh, to somebody else, but it, it's certainly a way of actually providing a, a pathway for someone who, who may not have, have the, the opportunities otherwise to, to do that. Yeah, I, th- I think this point comes down to the distinction again between broking and trading. The broking business, which make, makes the Dukes brothers rich, is a business based on relationships. It's heavily embedded in social class. It relies on gentlemen's clubs. And there are many modern day comparisons, I would say a huge number of modern day comparisons in the financial industry that rely on the same type of social class structure. On the other hand, trading historically does appear to have been this, you know, a slightly different proposition where relationships don't work in quite the same way and that class advantage doesn't quite work. It it seems, therefore, that two quick points about the film. One is that we don't see Eddie Murphy's character doing any trading at all until he's already become a successful figure. Actually, the, 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 the social mobility part of finance isn't really in the film at all, except for the final scene. 
there's almost no trading in the film. The film is about broking and it's about ultimately superficial ways of building relationships. We know they're superficial because in these kangaroo courts they can hold, they can they can tear them apart at any point they want. But the other point is maybe a bigger point, which is the a question about the financial industry since the 80s, the extent to which automation and, you know, the globalised client base that on the one hand can expand your trading balance sheet a hell of a lot because you can have pension fund clients all over the world also basically eliminates this area of finance in which a lot of people from non-privileged backgrounds historically entered the business. I suspect in the US now, I mean, trading was historically the way in which people from these backgrounds entered finance. And how do they do it now? That raises another point, And I do want to get in um, this this whole um, risk versus return side into it, because it seems to me that one of the most the shrewdest characters in the whole thing is actually Ophelia, the prostitute, because she sees Winthorpe as a really good investment. She she weighs up the risk return of giving of basically helping out this totally lost guy who has seemingly nothing going for him. She takes that risk. She understands the potential upside. Is she arguably the shrewdest of them all? I, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think she's very shrewd. I mean, you know, so first of all, it's uh, uh, you know, her ability to see through surface appearance and be able to identify what would be an undervalued asset. Look at everybody else in the movie that was, when they saw Winthorpe in that condition, was uh, uh, dismissive and, and uh, abusive. And she identified him as being a potentially very valuable commodity, if you will, um, and uh, made a canny investment. Yeah, I want to just slightly dissent on this one. She's a very likable character. But again, uh, what looks like talent and smart investing and good decision making is actually simply positional structures in society. She is tipped off or bribed $100 near the beginning of the film by one of the old men can't remember exactly who it was presumably because in her line of work as a prostitute she has a relationship with them and it's through that positional advantage that she's in the position to make what is obviously a good investment that anyone would make so it's ultimately the question of is she making smart smarter decisions than other people would have made or is she in just a position where she's accidentally fallen into the opportunism of decision making in the first place. It seems to me like the latter, and it seems like in, in this film, every time it looks like someone's making good decisions, you step back and there's a, there's a broader positional element going on. It's ultimately all about insider trading. And unless you have the inside scoop, you're not going up in this here society. Is that the point? I, th- I think the point is we look at a trade, even in finance, we look at a trade someone put on. The question really is how did they arrive in the position to put on the trade? Well, you know, I think that, you know, I, I would say that both are true. I mean, uh, that definitely you have to have the opportunity. Definitely there has to be some sort of process by which you could get to that opportunity. But there are a lot of people that have that opportunity that still aren't able to make the canny trade. So, uh, so I think you know, both elements are important. But I did want to just quickly also bring in some of the background to the film in terms of who produced it. The, the producer was Aaron Russo, who um, is known also for creating a film called The Rose. But he was also a bit of a conspiracy theorist. So he ended up um, recording a film called From Freedom to Fascism later on. And he was what I would call one of these gold bug conspiracy theories. And I, I just wonder if that is surprising to anyone. 
Oh my God, no! I mean, you know, sort of the conspiracy theories are, uh, are a dime a dozen uh, in these markets. Uh, I can't tell you how many times uh, in the year and a half when I uh, worked for this brokerage firm in Chicago that that Reagan had died. I mean, you know, so rumors and conspiracy theories are are rife in these markets. Keeping to that point, um, um, what really is the takeaway here? Is this a film that is trying to t- tell us a moral message about trading, about how everything is corrupt, and that really? to get ahead in life you need to have the inside scoop or else forget about it or is it as phil kind of argues actually about the potential social mobility of finance as a force in in society personally i think it's it's more of the first but t- tom you're looking it's very hard to weigh it all up uh, it's obviously a classic film it's hard to do it justice in just one hour i think having seen it twice the first time i saw it i thought it was a simple disproof of nature nurture i was about 12 but I watched it and remember thinking of course it's all about nurture it's not nature watching it this time you know it's not that I now think it's nature rather than nurture is that I think in general the conversation about nature versus nurture is a mistaken conversation that places emphasis in the wrong places and that really this film I think gets that across quite quite well by playing with some of the conventions of finance playing with what what we think might impress us about someone who's good at broking or trading or finance and, and playing with the real reasons why they might succeed. I don't think that those things are necessarily mutually exclusive. I think both of those themes can be true. And I think that that's, a, you know, in some respects, the, the, the most valuable lesson about the markets is that uh, uh, they can be both avenues for social advancement, but they can also be ways through which existing social structures uh, rig the system in favor of uh, of the incumbents, if you will. So, I mean, I think that that's, you know, what we have, presenting those contrasting views, I think, uh, present the more realistic and balanced picture of the of the way that markets really are. Phil, I do want to get your closing thought. Yes, it's it's all about, um, really, I, th- I think, it, uh, an old-fashioned morality play and that things aren't uh, what they seem from first appearance. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Since we had that recording, a few things have happened uh, that we think are quite relevant. I've actually roped in Tom Hale to come back and have a little discussion about it because it is worth just flagging some of this stuff. Tom, Trump has essentially appointed a bunch of former commodities experts and traders into significant jobs in his new administration. Most recently, Vincent Vinnie. Viola, who was formerly NYMEX chairman, but also CEO of Virtue Capital, uh, which is one of these Ponzi HFT companies. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, my, I mean, the guy's name, Vinny Viola, I mean, he sounds like a character out of Trading Places. You know, it's quite clear Trump, it's quite clear a lot of the stuff going on in Trading Places, Trump has a soft spot for some of the practices depicted in that film and, and, and some of the broader cultural approaches in the 80s as well to do with Wall Street, to do with finance. Uh, how, how in particular do you think these kind of appointments could influence things like trading or the markets? Well, I think it's really interesting that um, Vinny, he's very well known in the market. He's a big sort of charismatic and larger than life character who famously gift wrapped his house, literally put a giant bow on it for, I think it must have been Christmas, but or maybe it was just a present. So he's this sort of larger than life character. He cut his teeth on the NYMEX floor in 1982. 
But he's not the only one that that has this experience. The, um, Trump's also appointed Gary Cohn, the Goldman Sachs president and CEO, and um, he's going to be the head of the National Economic Council. He was previously a trader on the metal floor at the New York Comex. So suddenly there are all these guys who really understand how that game was played, who used to play it in the sort of era when it was up close and personal, face-to-face, but they've also kind of learnt their lesson with respect to what's going on with digitization. And um, Viola is the man who brought sort of HFT to everybody's attention. His company is really one of the big leaders in this field. I find it fascinating that he's going to be the army secretary because, is I mean, is this like Trump anticipating Skynet? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's... It's difficult to say. I mean, I think um, we were talking on the podcast about some of the distinctions between the different roles on Wall Street. You've got the kind of the traders who this avenue for people from not necessarily privileged backgrounds to kind of rise up very meritocratic. You know, you kind of got to think quickly on your feet. And then you've got um, you've got the other side of Wall Street, which is the brokers, the dukes in the film who who are entirely based on connections and kind of gentlemen's clubs. And I, I think some of the response to Trump's appointments has failed to make the distinction between the types of Wall Street. It seems Trump and his picks is favouring the kind of instinctive, snap decision-making, trading type of characters rather than maybe the smooth operatives, the, the very silky client-facing types who were maybe more predominantly featured in previous administrations and their interaction with Wall Street. So... I mean, Trump did campaign on this partially anti-Wall Street promise, but, I mean, as we discussed in the podcast, there's two Wall Streets. There's many more than two, but there's two distinct types of person on Wall Street. We are also seeing these tough guys come into the administration. These, these, I mean, Vincent has a reputation for sort of intimidating people with his presence. So he, I mean, if, you, if you've seen his... Um, his picture, he's a very, you know, he's a handsome, imposing sort of Italian guy. And, uh, you know, couple that with the Rex Tillerson appointment to uh, Secretary of State, suddenly you have these, you know, what I would say tough guys in the cabinet. I mean, uh, sorry, administration. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, I mean, there was a, there was a blog post by Tyler Cohen a few days ago that said, whatever you think of Trump's picks, they're likely to be effective in what they say they're going to do. I, I think that's quite a convincing argument because they are types in the mould of Trump himself who will, you could believe, they will just not be afraid of making dramatic changes. They won't be meditative. They won't necessarily contemplate things a long time. Their careers didn't instil in them those, I was going to say those virtues, but it's unclear whether in the in the field of policy precisely what is and isn't a virtue I, th- I mean that that's another discussion entirely I mean it's it's funny because obviously uh, Vincent's company is virtue financial that's a pun um, on on the virtual nature of the job but you know before we finish off just bringing it back to how it links into the film you know we started off the podcast noting that 1982-83 was kind of the era when everything was changing and things were becoming more electronic the likes of Vinny really saw that transition and he he's certainly part of the crew who realized that if you don't adapt you die and uh, what's also interesting is that his company I mean there was a big song and dance about the IPO and since it 
since it did go public, it's the share price has kind of wavered. It hasn't done very much. And what we've come to understand is this world of algorithmic trading, it suffers from diminishing returns on quite a massive scale. And so you can have the edge, but in this electronic world where there is no empathy, where you're literally just as good as how quick you are, you don't necessarily have those old school uh, advantages that you did on the floor. Everything becomes very... Um, mechanical and so maybe you know if he's using that uh, to influence his wider political uh, views and 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 how he'll be with the army I mean Vincent also um, graduated from West Point so he does understand uh, how the army works but I, I wonder if this diminishing return stuff and the cyber hacking and and what's going on with Russia whether there is a a kind of equally sort of nurture nature thing going on are we cultivating are we playing games who's manipulating who who is there a bigger game being played but it's all kind of jedi mind tricks yeah absolutely i think there's there's a quite a loose parallel but still a parallel between the points you're making about trading going from something instinctive this kind of you know as you see in the film you're on the floor it's a real human activity you see the raw emotion i actually earlier this year i wrote an article about a trading course given by Nick Leeson uh it was just kind of fun course he did teaching people about trading based on his own experiences and it was I mean it was one of these kind of spread betting courses I'm not sure there was a huge amount of actual usable advice in trading but he said a few interesting things one of them was that when he was on the trading floor the thing the great thing about it was that you could see who was in pain and who wasn't in pain you know it was a there was human emotion there that as you rightly su suggest has been removed from the sphere of play a lot i think there's a parallel in policy and in politics there's a sense that there was an era in which people made a lot of gut decisions they they went on instincts they didn't meditate and contemplate for years and in in the build-up to 2016 i think it would be fair to say that policy in western democracies has moved towards a form of bureaucracy which does seek to perhaps legitimately strip out the immediacy of emotion strip out gut reactions and instincts and it seems like the picks whatever you else you say about them the picks trump has made are a direct reaction against that that he wants he wants people who will make policy like they trade so i think that kind of brings us to a close um in terms of reflections about trading places and and how this bridges into the administration uh, choices of trump I think maybe the next film we should do is something like War Games, where we, where it was all about the game theory, the algorithms, and sort of hacking as well. So that might be something to consider for next time. But in the interim, um, I think that is it from us. And uh, do let us know what you think of the podcast. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com or give us a call at plus one nine one seven five five one five zero one two. Please do also rate the show on iTunes. It helps other people find it. Alpha Chat will be taking a brief break for the Christmas period, but we will be back in the new year with... Uh... Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. 
Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Cardiff heading up the show as usual. Thanks again. <laughs> 